welcome. This is the Louisiana Progressive Podcast, and I'm your host, Adrian Talon. The purpose of this podcast is to engage the progressive movement in Louisiana. My first guest was Matthew Schonenberger. He's currently the community engagement liaison for New Orleans City Councilman J.H. Banks. And before that, he helped organize several Bernie marches. We'll get into that. This podcast was recorded December 2020 before our amazing wins in Georgia and Trump's failed coup d'etat. I apologize beforehand for some of the noise and I hope you enjoy. Schonenberger, welcome. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate you inviting me to have this conversation. Yes, thanks for coming. So, uh, I first heard of uh, Matthew Schonenberger through some YouTube research. You caught my attention at your Women's March, especially with your opening remark in your speech. I am a feminist. I thought that that was uh, different say the least, um, in Louisiana to, to shout that, uh, yeah, and your energy also caught my attention. I was like, okay, this guy's really dynamic, and, uh, I was, I thought, okay, I want him to be, I want you to be my first guest for this podcast, <clears throat> uh, which is titled The Louisiana Progressive. So, right now, you're the community engagement liaison for Councilmember J.H. Banks. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that uh, you got that job through your work with the marches, organizing the marches. Uh, can we can we hear a little bit about sure. how that happened? That <clears throat> it's, a, it's a pretty interesting journey. So, I mean, I, I can start from the beginning. Yes, please. Um, so I moved, you know, I was born and raised in Covington, Louisiana. And, you know, Covington is kind of its own little bubble, you know, a lot of conservatives there, uh, you know, not as much of a progressive, you know, movement or groups in that area. And, you know, I grew up in an interesting household where my mother was conservative and my father was very liberal. So I had both kind of point of views growing up. Right. And I was not so much interested in politics until I moved to New Orleans and went to college at UNO for film. Um, very much like you, you said you saw me on YouTube giving speeches. Um, before the 2016 election, I saw videos of Bernie Sanders talking online, you know, during committee meetings, and I heard how passionate he was, and then I heard he was running for president, and he was right. going to give a speech in Kenner, Louisiana, and I think it was July of 2015. So that's when I started to get very interested, and I went to, it was in Kenner, uh, I think it was the Pontchartrain Center, I'm not entirely sure where it was, but I heard Bernie Sanders speak in person, and once I heard him speak, I was like, I believe in this guy, I trust him, I want to do everything in my power to help get him elected. So that's when I got involved and you know, organized with um, a man that I met named Lawrence Dunn, uh, three marches for Bernie Sanders. Where did you Where did you meet Lawrence? It was online, and that's that's what I kind of realized. A lot of this movement 
to do these marches all happened online, right? It was these online communities from all around the country. What forum? Uh, what forum was it? Uh, well, Facebook it, it was or? Facebook, yeah. yeah. There were a lot of Facebook groups like Louisiana for Bernie, you know, insert state here for Bernie, right? It was right. everywhere. So we did the first March for Bernie. Um, we had about, I think it was like 221 people. It was about 30 cities across the country that did it. Um, and it was pretty successful. And where did y'all, was it in New Orleans proper? It, it was in New Orleans, yeah. We started in Washington Square, and then we did a route back to Washington Square. Okay. And it was fully permitted. You know, we raised money on a GoFundMe to pay for it. Right. You know, we had a police escort the whole bit. Okay. Um, that was the first march that we did. And the second march had uh, close to 400 people attend. We wow. had a, We had a brass band. Um, of course. Yeah, which in New Orleans, it, it always helps to energize people. We had a brass band. Um, we, we realized how big the movement was getting because during the first march, it happened in 30 cities. During the second march, it happened in 60 cities. Right. Or about 60 cities, maybe more. So it was getting bigger. And at that point, we were organizing more because we actually had people, you know, collecting names, email addresses, phone numbers for volunteers for the Bernie Sanders campaign to help with canvassing and phone banking. But it's still my understanding that the Bernie Sanders campaign wasn't working with any of these organizers for these marches. These people independent of his campaign were doing this because they believed in him. And to my knowledge, I've never known of a campaign that had marches in the streets, you know, in modern times for candidates, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> Then we did a third march for Bernie, and unfortunately, the third march had a more somber tone because that was right before the Democratic Convention, and we all realized, you know, we had hope that something would happen, but we kind of realized because of superdelegates that he didn't really have a shot at that point and that Hillary Clinton was going to get the nomination. But we still marched in support of Bernie Sanders, and unfortunately, he lost, Hillary got the nomination, and Trump became our president. So. Yeah. You know, um, I looked up the benefits of marches, and uh, I'm, I'm French. I immigrated to the States when I was six, and the French have a reputation of taking it to the streets since the 60s, and then with the yellow jacket marches, uh, yellow vest marches, and what I read from like the Tea Party to liberal marches was that marches don't get people, don't change the mind of policymakers. What they do is they engage people from the Tea Party to whatever. So if you go to a march, there's more of a chance that you're going to one, vote, and then two, get other people engaged. So some people think marches don't do anything. I remember marching for the Iraq War. Uh, that was the only march I've ever been a part of, and nothing happened, obviously. We went to war, but that probably politically engaged a lot of those people. So, uh, you know, kudos to you for getting those people out there. And, 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 I'm, and I'm in total agreement with you. No, do marches change the world? Do they, do they cause policies to always change? No, I don't think so. But they do help organize people. They do help form groups. They do help, you know, put a spotlight on important issues and they energize people, you know, like like the Women's March, you know, right after that, 
that was right after Trump was, um, you know, inaugurated, and people were upset. I mean, understandably, right. nobody thought that Trump would win. So the Women's March was kind of a, okay, Trump is now our president. Let's all work together, you know, and and let's, you know, even though you know Hillary Clinton lost, you know, let's as a collective voice put a spotlight on the fact that yeah he won but there's still issues that we care about and we need to fight for and that this will get us down right so like the women's march in new orleans uh, we had a lot of good people i mean we initially before the women's march happened larry dunn and myself were going to organize a millennials march because our focus was then going to be okay we want like the youth of New Orleans, like the progressive youth of New Orleans, to march and have a voice. Right. But the organizers of the Women's March, or when it was happening, reached out to us because they saw the work that we did for the Bernie marches, and they said, let's combine forces. You want to do this Millennials March, we're going to do the Women's March. Let's combine it and do just a big march. So I have some of the, I don't want to forget people's names here, yeah, but yeah, um, it was mostly women, of course, that we worked with, but it was myself, uh, Angela Atkins, Sarah um, Caracker, uh, Megan Thiel Mack, Marcia Lane, and many others came together as a collective group and we organized the march, uh, the Women's March in New Orleans. And at that time, to my understanding, there wasn't you know, a bigger march in the city of New Orleans. I think we had over 10,000, maybe 15,000 people marching in the city. Um, you know, we had notable speakers, like Senator Karen Carter-Peterson, uh, at that time, State Representative Helena Moreno, at that time, City Councilwoman uh, Latoya Cantrell. I was honored to speak at the Women's March, and still to this day, I still think that was the best speech I ever gave. Um, yeah, and that, I mean, you were energetic. <laughs> yeah, and the energy, the energy there was just insane. I, 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 I can't... I mean, if you could bottle the feeling from that day and sell it, I mean, you'd, you'd be a millionaire. It was just incredible. Right. Everyone coming together, marching, chanting, um, you know, and just this collective energy was just intoxicating. It was absolutely incredible. So, no, you, do marches change, you know, will marches fix ev everything or fix all of our problems? No, but I think they do energize people. They put a spotlight on issues, and they, they, they put a focus, and they, they help organize. I mean, you know, phone banking, canvassing, uh, knocking on doors um, as a result of these marches, um, I think, are very useful. Right. So. so right now, you have this position. Can you tell me the details of how you got into the position that you're in right now? So... Um, Yes. After after the Women's March, you know, we did a second one, which had about 10,000 people. We did a People's Climate March. Um, we did an impeachment march, even. And <clears throat> at that time, I was I joined Our Revolution NOLA, which was uh, a group founded by Bernie Sanders after he lost the Democratic primary. And the intention of Our Revolution was to um, help uh, grassroots candidates run for office. So uh, I was a steering committee member of Our Revolution NOLA, and I was in charge of organizing these marches after they saw what we did with the Bernie marches and then the women's march. So after, you know, and it was very interesting, right? It was like a reemergence of, of uh, civic engagement through marches. You know, it's something we saw, like you were saying, in the 60s and 70s. It was just a cool time to be at, engaged and active in that. So 
a woman who was running for city council at the time, her name was Eileen McClansky, she was running for city council in District A, saw the work that I was doing, and she reached out to me, and she's like, I see your passion and your energy, I want to hire you to work on my campaign as my oh, field wow. director. Yeah. Which I told her, I'm like, I have no experience working on campaigns. I've never done that before. And she said, she's like, I understand, but I want you to work for me. So I was hired to be her field director. She ran for city council in District A. I learned a lot from her. I still, you know, thank her. And we're actually very good friends to this day. Uh, but she lost. She lost her seat, or she lost for that seat, uh, and, and Joe Jerusa won. He's now the council member for District A. And at that time, I was wondering, I'm like, what? I don't know what I'm going to do, you know, because if she would have won, I potentially could have worked on her staff, you know. Um, and I told myself, you know, I, I need to figure out what I'm going to do now. You know, you, you can march and, and do all these things, but, you know, I was also looking for work as well. Mm -hmm, of course. So... <clears throat> I was then, you know, my eyes kind of saw the, the District B race, which was in a runoff between Seth Bloom and J.H. Banks. And I remember going to a, a meet and greet in District B um, in the Uptown neighborhood, and uh, that was my first time meeting um, Jay. And I asked him some questions, you know, like, uh, do you support, you know, increasing the minimum wage, etc.? gave some very good answers and um, you know I got to talk to him a little bit after that and um, then I met him again um, the night that he won the runoff and that's when uh, Latoya Cantrell won her runoff against uh, Desiree Charbonnet right. and I went to his victory party and I went up to him and I said you know I believe in you and I shook his hand and he said you know I'll give you a call in a month and I figured you know he just you know would say that to anybody yeah you know I'll give you a call sure. You obviously told him what you had been doing previously um right. yeah I, I think he had some sort of understanding and I told him I was working on another campaign in another district um but uh he's you know calling a month or so and I get a call from one of his assistants and they said you know Jay wants to meet with you and we sat down for coffee and he asked me you know why do you want this job and I told him you know I want to help people you know I've organized these marches in the past I'm I'm progressive, you know, I, I, I care about these issues and I want to do anything that I can and I truly believe in you. And he said, okay, you're on the team. Um, and he hired me and I'm now the community engagement liaison for Councilmember J.H. Banks and I've never been happier. Uh, it's the best job I've ever had. And, you know, uh, if he decides to run again uh, for his seat in District B, I'll be very happy, you know, if he chooses to keep me on his staff because it's it's just a wonderful thing to be able to help people. So Okay, so on to the next subject. Right now we have Biden, who is going to be our president. He selected Congressman Richmond, I think, as a senior advisor and on climate issues. People have objected to that. The Sunrise Movement has objected to that. Uh, and uh, I think that's specifically because he took, for his campaign donations, he has taken oil money. Uh, I think in Louisiana, that's it's hard to find a politician who hasn't. There's, I don't know if we have any notable progressive Democrats that aren't blue dog Democrats, as they're called, uh, even our governor right now. Now he set up a, the governor set up uh, some type of climate advisory board, um, but uh, I recall that he, he has a great thing that he does every Wednesday, uh, once a month, people call in and they can ask a question directly to the governor. I've called in, I called in once, and uh, I asked him about climate change and 
he did he gave me your your typical Louisiana talking point natural gas is cleaner you know so in your in your experience is there is there a Democrat out there that you would consider to be similar to Bernie some somebody who's who's along those lines uh, you know those progressive lines well and that's a hard thing to answer because I don't know I don't know if there's anyone I mean Bernie is such a unique human being this is true I could describe it's, yes I mean when you know knock on wood when Bernie Sanders decides to you know retire from public service and decides to go back home in Burlington Vermont I think we're gonna have a great loss because I don't think we've ever had someone in Bernie Sanders that I I believe you know is as unique uh, truly cares about people and will do everything in his power to stand up to power even if they drag his name through the mud right right so is there a Bernie Sanders right now in our state I don't know. Will will one or will somebody show up like in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and take that mantle in the state? I think so. I just, I don't know if I would throw out a name that I would know of yet. Right. Because you know? even Bernie, Bernie's from Vermont. Vermont makes guns. Bernie is pro-Second Amendment. Yeah. Right? Which, by all measure, is not typically your progressive, you know, uh, position. However, it's kind of the same thing. If you're if you're a politician here in the state, where does the state get most of its money from? Well, a lot of it comes from, you know, our uh, oil platforms, our, you know, so in our fracking. And so it's, you know, I guess I, to a certain extent, you have to understand where they're coming from. But but even the even the oil companies, if you look on the Shell website, they acknowledge climate change. And at the end of the day, they're in the energy business. So we can we're in the energy business, Louisiana, but we also have a huge coastline that can have windmills, and we can also be in the energy business, and it doesn't have to be the the oil business. Mm -hmm. So I guess you answered my question. We haven't found that person yet, and will they emerge? Will we have a an AOC? here uh who knows right now i guess the will we be able to have one right now especially with the 2020 census that's happening which is directly linked to gerrymandering and especially now that i don't know when it was but so the supreme court ruled that section b of Section 5, Section 4B of Section 5, if I get those right, we'll fact check at the end of this episode, but basically said that it was unconstitutional. And Section 4B is, is the formula for Section 5. Section 5 says that if there's any redistricting, it can't, it can't take into account race or political bias mm -hmm. when they redistrict. <clears throat> And now that Section 4B, which is the formula, which basically is, as far as I know, the formula is, these districts in the past have been discriminatory, uh, and therefore the Justice Department can oversee all their the changes that they make. But now that Section 4B is ruled unconstitutional because they said this was 40 years ago, this formula was based on 40 years ago, and now things have changed, which in all in all actuality is is true uh, it's things have changed the supreme court is correct and now it's congress's turn to hopefully pass a new 
Civil Rights Act. Maybe we'll have the chance to, to see that. I think we have to wait to see the outcomes of Georgia. Yeah. <clears throat> but what are your concerns with... They haven't got the census yet. Biden will be in office. But what, do you, what are your concerns with the gerrymandering that might happen in Louisiana well, when the census <clears throat> comes out and the redistricting that's in there? If, if you want to see a, a very good example of bad gerrymandering or gerrymandering, you can look at Steve Scalise's congressional district. District 1. District 1. It The way it's shaped up, it just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it has the North Shore, it has parts of Lakeview, it has parts of the Audubon area, you know, and it, it, it just cuts around. I mean, and it... Mm-hmm. We, as we know, gerrymandered districts, which help Democrats and Republicans, not just one party, but but for his in particular, it should, I think it should be changed. I mean, and I hope that you know potentially New Orleans might even get another congressional seat when they look at the census numbers and they also just redistrict or potentially redistrict uh, the state. You know, Cedric Richmond's seat. I think it's the second congressional district, is the outskirts of Baton Rouge, I think all the way to like St. James Parish. I could be wrong on that, but but you know, that goes all the way down. I mean that one could even be cut up. Right. And would probably have, you know, at that point two democratic seats. So um, have we had a population boom or are we still on the decrease? Well we won't we don't we won't know until we get the numbers, right? right? But I would think since twenty ten our population has probably increased. Right, since I, Katrina. Since Katrina, at least. Right, we had a, we had a big dip from Katrina, um, but I think now in 2020, we'll see when we get the numbers, our population has probably increased, which is great, right? We'll get more federal dollars for infrastructure, education, etc. cetera. Uh, but my hope is, if they decide to redistrict, I, and I believe that the state legislature has to redraw those maps, right? Right. Um, that... It, it's carved out in such a way that we hopefully get another seat, which in the hope would be another you know, Democrat would get in there so we have more equal representation because right now I think it's five Democrats and one Republican. I mean, oh, sorry, let's strike that, reverse it. Five Republicans, one Democrat. Um, so it's, uh, it's rather unfortunate. Uh, the congressional representation is severely lacking for our state. I was looking at uh, where Norco was and that's in district one mm-hmm. and i find it interesting that some of the most polluted and that is one of the most polluted areas in louisiana is in steve scalise's district and it makes me think that when you had the climate march you had it in new orleans right mm-hmm. and if we are to believe what marches do is they engage people are we do you think that in Louisiana, have you heard, do you, do you think it would be wise that we have more climate marches and maybe situate them in places that are actually losing territory and places that are also in highly polluted areas like Norco? And that might, even if they gerrymander, mm-hmm. will still politically engage people. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I believe it's St. James Parish, which is like in you know, what people call Cancer Alley, uh, there are groups that do march, they do protest constantly, right? Because, I mean, I, I think the, the data and the studies have shown that the cancer rates are um, astronomically higher in those areas, right? And I think that's good. I mean, they, they do have a strong presence there, and I think recently they had their own victory where uh, a permit was denied uh, for um, 
I think another plant to be built there. Yes. So they they are active. They I think they they have a very strong presence, and the hope would be now, and and marching like we said, marching is great, marching is good. But the hope now is with the incoming Biden administration that they take climate policy seriously. And they, they take a look at these areas and see how they can improve these lives. And I hope, I hope, hope, hope that Biden will take this very seriously. I, I think he will. I mean, his climate plan, to my knowledge, was not as aggressive as Bernie's. But I think he said he wants to invest about, I think it was two or three trillion dollars into climate change um, improvements and, and policies. So we'll see how much he can get through based on, of course, what happens in Georgia if we get those two Senate seats. But the hope now is the federal government steps up to the plate and they actually, you know, work on these issues. So that's going to be, that's going to be, he's not, has he signed on to the Green New Deal? I mean, the Green New Deal, I think, is just an idea, right? I don't think there's anything. It was more of a resolution than a binding piece of legislation with absolute specifics. And a my, good name. And a good name, yeah. Um, <clears throat> no, I don't think he signed on to the Green New Deal, but also his ideas of what he wants to do are to the left of former President Obama. I mean, if he can get at least half of what he wants to do into law, I think it will dramatically improve the lives of people. You know, and that... And I'll even say, I mean, that was a reason why I wound up supporting, you know, Joe Biden. You know, Bernie Sanders, when he lost the primary, he endorsed Biden and he said it very plainly. He's like, look, if we don't get Biden and we get Trump, we get nothing. Biden is fighting for, you know, a good portion, if not, it's not all, but a good portion of what Bernie stood for. And Bernie even said, look, I, I disagree fundamentally with Biden on a number of issues, you know, but if we can get even half of this done, it will substantially improve people's lives. And I think that is the important thing right now. I mean, the, the, the Trump administration and what they did in four years was catastrophic on so many levels. Right. Um, the hope is, especially if we get those two seats in Georgia, if we have a Democratic majority in the House and the Senate and Biden, and they, if they get to work, I mean, they it has the opportunity and the chance of being, you know, something that will improve our lives and healthcare and the environment and infrastructure. But only time will tell. You know, I will be able to judge the merits after the presidency is over, after his first four years. Mm -hmm. But I am optimistic, to say the very least. I feel that one of the one of the silver mm -hmm. linings of the Trump administration has been how it's galvanized the left. Mm -hmm. And in a similar way, when Obama was in was uh, became president, he galvanized the right. The Tea Party came around, and what I don't want, and one of the reasons for starting this podcast and engaging myself and engaging with others is that I don't want us to become complacent. I don't want the right to suddenly start to themselves organize while we you know, sit back and say, okay, we, we got this for four years, you know, because we have, uh, <clears throat> we have a lot of work to do. I'm, I'm almost the, the, I'm, I almost hope that, that Trump is, uh, not to talk too much about his, what he's done after the election, but the fact that he's discredited the democratic process, I'm curious to see how it affects the Republican turnout. 
Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I talk You mean to, for the uh, for the runoffs in Georgia? Absolutely. Yeah. I talked to... I've had a lot of working class jobs. I was a bartender, uh, and then COVID hit, and now I'm a landscaper. And I talked to so many people who don't vote, and they give you the, the classic response, my vote doesn't count. Part of me hopes that Republicans are now saying, oh, well, my vote doesn't count. And I think that... I think that Georgia will maybe tell us, you know, how they feel about this because, I don't know, we'll see, I guess. Well, and it's interesting, right? I mean, Trump likes to, you know, kind of identify himself as like a kingmaker, you know, who I endorse will win. I could be wrong here, but I think the majority of the candidates that Trump backed during his four years didn't win. And some of the people associated with Trump, especially during this, what they believe to be a controversy with, you know, voter fraud, which... You know they've lost basically every single court case that they've they've put forth, except for one. I Ex- think they won one. Yeah, except for one, which I think was you know the distance between the poll watchers, you know, watching the the ballots. Yeah, that's it. So it's nothing substantial. Right. Um, you know those people are saying, oh, you know, don't vote in Georgia unless you know they promise not to use these certain type of mail-in voting, ballots. Yeah, yeah. mail-in ballots or voting machines, what have you. So. There is an interesting potential, like you said, where not even just Trump, but the people associated with Trump might convince enough Trump supporters not to vote in Georgia. And if that happens and there's a strong Democratic turnout, yeah, the Democrats have an actual chance to take Georgia. Will they do it? I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't think anyone knows at this point. I know the polls are very, very close, but I mean, there's a shot. There's a chance. And it's very exciting. If if the Democrats take over, I mean, the House has already passed a $15 an hour minimum wage bill. They passed the marijuana federal decriminalization. They passed that, you know, and and if the Democrats take the Senate, you you would think that the incoming senators would vote. And support those two bills and then they would go to Joe Biden and Joe Biden would sign them. So I mean, I think I hope Democrats are making the case like, look, we get in here, you know, we're gonna improve your lives. And I, I, I see that. Um, I just hope that that message is getting out far and wide and we have enough Democrats going out to vote. But but to your point, yeah, I, I think there is a strong possibility that Republicans have shot themselves in the foot and voter turnout might not be what they expected. Right. Okay. I wanted to bring up China just for a couple points. Uh, so I feel that China will become, in our lifetime, the biggest story. Our, how China affects the world, which we've already seen in, it affects our, how, how they affect our freedom of speech. And I'm wondering how we're going to be able to, I know that you're, you're in New Orleans and this, this is, you're, you're in uh, domestic uh, uh politics but it's it's interesting to me and it's it's in a way very scary um and it's tied to climate as, as well uh so they've affected how how movies are produced they've affected how the nba handles itself and in contrast to the soviet union during the cold war which at that time we had trade with the soviet union it was mostly in i think natural gas but it was so small uh, you know, in comparison to to China, and you know, look around you. Half the stuff in this yard probably has a "Made in China" uh, marking on it. And 
you know, and that's not to say, I'm not anti-Chinese. I think the Chinese are uh, moving in, in many ways in the right direction with regards to climate, and they can make quicker changes than we can, although their banks back up a lot of coal power plants. But how, give me your, how do you feel about the, the, the future, China, or the United States? How do you, how do you look at the subject matter? Well, one of the things I'm very passionate about is climate change. And what I hope for, and I, I think Biden has alluded to, that he would bring world leaders together to not just rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, but work towards a global cooperation to tackle climate change. And I think the Chinese government is probably smart enough to realize you know, their footprint is close to ours, if not more. Um, I think they surpassed this. Yeah, they, and they probably not have. Not much, but... They probably have, you know, and I think there's going to be an understanding that we have to work together if we're going to tackle climate change. You know, we had four years under Trump where he removed every single environmental regulation that you can think of, the Clean Water Act, etc., you know, drilling in the Arctic, all, all these terrible things that should not be happening, you know, when we're having record number of storms. So... <clears throat> I think that the Biden administration, well, I hope that the Biden administration will work, you know, with China to accomplish these climate goals. Now, another thing, too, Biden alluded to this. I don't know if he's going to do this, but I remember that Trump talked about an America first executive order. Do you, do you remember that? Do you know what that is? No. So uh, Trump. I mean, was, I know that's his America first. Yes. Well, well, it was a good idea, but he didn't do it. The idea was that the federal government, so the federal government buys, you know, from, from coffee cups to toilet paper to everything, they buy them mostly from foreign countries. China you know, probably is the you know, number one on that list. Uh, Trump was saying, oh, I'm going to sign an America first executive order saying that the federal government will only buy products from American companies. Okay. And he didn't do that. That is a good idea. Which is a very good idea. He did not do that. What he did was an America First week, which was he brought in a few American companies and, you know, touted, you know, these wonderful, great American products. So nothing really happened. Right. Biden, uh, incoming, you know, President-elect Joe Biden has said that he would sign the America First executive order, which would then, you know, add more federal dollars towards American companies to buy oh. American products. So okay. that would be a substantial improvement. Uh, because it's, I mean, it's bill. I think it's billions of dollars that the federal government spends to buy these products. So, so basically, every pin that the federal government would use, as an example, mm -hmm. would now be made in America. Would be made in America. That's a fantastic thing. That's yeah. something small that we could do. That's actually very huge. We buy a lot of pens. Yeah, you know, pens, toilet paper, paper towels, anything. I mean, anything you could think of. Uh, I think right. maybe some of it was, you know, American-made, but I think the majority was from China or foreign countries. So. Obviously, it would cost more money yeah. and it would cost more taxpayer dollars, but in the end, it would have a lot of benefits. One of them being that it wouldn't have to travel all the way from China, which mm -hmm. would, which increases the carbon footprint. Exactly. So that is, I think, a small but substantial change that the Biden administration could do. Now he needs to do it, but I think if he does that, that, that would certainly help. So, I mean, really to answer your question, I, my hope, and I keep saying hope because we haven't seen it yet, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt uh, before uh, he you know, gets into office, before his presidency is over, that he will uh, do things like increasing the minimum wage. He will reverse Trump's tax giveaways to corporations. He will improve our relations 
to foreign countries such as China um, to especially help with everyone's carbon footprint or collective carbon footprint uh, and that he will you know reverse a lot of the damaging policies of the Trump administration and I think you know we don't know yet what he will do with China but I think on a climate perspective I think we're going to be in much better hands under Biden administration in relation to China. I agree. There is one little issue I find that's going to bite us in the future, possibly. It's the lithium situation. Now, China, as far as I know, is the leader in lithium globally. Mm -hmm. There's a company called Gangfen, which is the biggest processing or one of the biggest processors, processing companies of lithium. They make the batteries. I believe they go into the Teslas, and we're moving in that direction. And we're about to have the first lithium or electric F-150, the first electric Mustang. The, th the things that are going to go into this these cars are going to be probably Chinese made. We I don't think we have a we might have like we might have some lithium mines in, in the United States, but I don't I don't think that they're they're on the scale of what what China's been doing for for years. They're way ahead of us. Yeah. Other countries like Japan aren't going lithium. They're going uh, hydrogen. Do you think that it could in my opinion it could go two ways. It could solidify like maybe with Saudi Arabia and oil it could solidify a working relationship where we're buying their lithium for our cars we're making them money and we have a great business relationship which is good uh, you know that's sort of what's you know keeps us together right now despite our, our ideological differences mm -hmm. but do you do you see a problem with the this our source of, of uh, renewable energy that's going to go in our cars do you do you have an opinion on the matter, or? Well, um, I mean, look at look at you know how it currently is with oil, right? Uh, gasoline, you know, our relationship in the Middle East, uh, oh, you know, from from you know first Bush to the second President Bush, in, in terms of going to the Middle East and you know uh, getting oil has been disastrous, right? And I think these companies, these man car manufacturers and even oil companies are realizing that you know, the future is renewable. Mm -hmm. So there will be a shift and we're starting to see it now towards more renewables, especially, you know, car dealerships touting out, you know, electric cars or hybrid cars. So I I don't think it'll necessarily be a hindrance to use, and I'm, I'm not as knowledgeable in, in lithium or, you know, the, the scientific use of it, but as long as we're not invading other countries for their lithium, and we are we are making trade deals with them, I think that's great. Yes. Um, you know, as long as we're not, uh, like I just said, going starting a war over something and then taking the lithium, I think that's fine. And I'm not sure if we have any natural lithium mines, like you were saying, in our country. But anything that we can do to move from fossil fuel to a more renewable, clean energy source, I'm supportive of, right? I mean, we, right. Need, we, need, we need to have, you know, moved on, you know, you know yesterday. It needed to have already happened. Right. But, but the, the move to renewable energy is fantastic, not just for, you know, the, the climate, but for our health, for the general well-being, right? And, and you know, like... President Trump always talked about, you know, the United States being the leader in everything. You know, why can't we be the leader in renewable energy? You know, why why do we have to be second to any other country? You know, this is the most powerful 
uh, most prosperous country in, in the history of the world, right? And hopefully, and I keep going back to that word, I, hopefully uh, the priorities of that climate movement and us being a leader in renewables happens under a Biden administration, happens under a Democratic Congress and a Democratic Senate, because it needs to. Um, but, but in terms of lithium, I mean, I think that's fine as long as we're making ethical deals uh, and trades with other countries and it doesn't involve us, you know, going into their countries and invading them for lithium. You know? Right, I agree. At the end of the day, these people that run these lithium companies are businessmen yeah. and we're a huge market. I want to thank you for coming here, talking to me. I appreciate it very much, Matthew. Who? Who should I speak to next? I'm gonna, at the end of my, my episode, I want to get a recommendation from the speaker, somebody they admire that I should reach out to. Well, that is a good question. Um, <clears throat> there's a woman named Linda Woolard who, in my opinion, you know, is almost second to none in terms of local Louisiana politics. She's fantastic. I think she would be a really good guest. Um, that's fine. Yeah, I would recommend. One is good. One is good. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, will you be able to to make a to reach out to her on, on my behalf? Sure. I reach out to you. And yeah. No, I'll I'll let her know that uh, you know I came on the podcast. I had a very good time. We had a very substantial conversation, and I would totally recommend she come on and have a conversation with you. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, uh, happy holidays. I look forward to seeing what you do in the future, in Louisiana. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. Alright, this is the fact check portion of the podcast. What is Congressman Cedric Richmond's position in the Biden administration? He will be the senior advisor and director of the White House Office of Public Engagement with focus on advancing economic stimulus, climate change mitigation, and law enforcement reforms. What plant was denied construction in Norco? the Taiwan-based Formosa chemical plant. It was initially approved by St. James Parish Council, but reached a halt when it was revealed that the plant would double the community's permitted toxic emissions levels. It's still in litigation, but the process has stalled due to COVID. Did the majority of the candidates that Trump endorsed win or lose? I just looked at the 2018 midterms. It appeared that a little more than half the candidates Trump endorsed won. What court election cases did Trump win or lose? The Trump administration had 61 defeated lawsuits and one win, where a Pennsylvania judge ruled voters had three days after the election to provide proper ID to cure ballots. And... Finally, does the U.S. own any lithium production facilities or mines? Currently, the only lithium producer is chemicals giant Albemarle, operating at the Silver Peak Lithium Brine Operation in Nevada. This material is then loaded on ships and sent to Asian battery manufacturers. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Stay tuned for episode two.